Today, we have Dee Svedberg on the podcast. She is a fantastic person and has been in this industry for decades. I've known her for decades. She's a third-party manager for Cornell Hospital Fertility Center. And if you're not in New York, that's one of the largest and certainly most well-respected fertility clinics in the world. And she has been doing this job for a very long time and doing it so well. She is so good with all of the patients and so good with the donors. She really holds their hands through the process. And, and through this podcast, you will have so many of your fears laid because you will learn what happens in the process. How does the donor get through it? How is she screened? How do we know that the donor is really who she says she is? How do we know what the treatment is like? How do we know she's appropriately screened? Everything you want to know behind the scenes, you will get today in this podcast. I think you will really enjoy it. Welcome to Donor Conception Conversations. This is the one podcast created exclusively for people who are planning to use donor conception to build their family or for people who have already built their family with donor conception. I'm your host. My name is Lisa Schumann. I'm a researcher, a therapist, and an expert in donor conception. And over my more than two decades of experience working both in fertility clinics and in my private practice, the Center for Family Building, I've met with thousands of donor-conceived individuals, children, recipients, and donors. And I have learned so much, and I'm here to teach you all that I've learned in this podcast. My guests and I will talk about everything that you need to know to have a better journey to parenthood. If it's about donor conception, we're going to talk about it. And I'm so glad to have you here today because we have a special treat for you. Dee Svedberg is a wonderful, wonderful human being that I've known for decades, and she is also incredible at her job. She is manager of the third-party program at Wild Cornell Hospital Fertility Center, which maybe some of you don't know because you're not around the New York area, but it is a huge fantastic program in New York. And this program is so wonderful and they really follow the rules. You know, I've spoken many <laughs> times before about, about lots of things that can go wrong in this industry, but you can really rely on Dee and her team there because they do such a wonderful job. So with that, I'd like to introduce you to her and we can talk a little bit about what she sees in the third party program because it's different for someone who's running the third party program than maybe for the doctor or for the therapist to see an egg donor. I think it's really helpful to get that information. So welcome, Dee. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to see you. Thanks for that. Great to see Generous you. introduction. <laughs> well, you know, I think you're wonderful and you have so much to share with our audience. And I think you've also seen that people, everyone just normally presents themselves differently in different situations. And I think the audience could really benefit from hearing your perspective because you've seen, probably seen thousands of donors by now. I think so. Yes, quite a few. I've been in the field for almost 20 years, like you said, and at Cornell for 16. It's a long time. Yes. So we do, we do screen a lot of donors in person, which is uh, one of our philosophies is that, you know, you, you meet the people in, in person when you're screening them. And we haven't really been doing, you know, even with the pandemic, we, we're still been, you know, doing minimal things online and, and remotely and having people come in person uh, to do our screening. 
I think it's very important to sit across from someone in the room. With the donors initially, when they're, when they're first coming in, I think one of the most important things to do is to put them at ease. Some of them are nervous uh, because they're about to go through quite an extensive screening and mm-hmm. they, they need to have expectations, explain to them, uh, educate them, empower them, reassure them that you're going to take care of them and try not to scare them off. And I think it's, you know, that's one of the things that I do in the program. I'm a, I'm a former and probably current educator, but former public school educator. So my own personal philosophy is that everything is better with education. So you want to educate the donors and the recipients as well uh, so that everyone has their expectations in line as as much as possible. And you also want to be very honest and communicative about what is involved with the screening process and the donation Mm -hmm. process. And if you can sort of extrapolate what it might look like later for them in life, because a lot of these donors are younger. um, They may not be thinking into their 30s or later on when they have their own families. So you can never underscore enough the importance of the mental health professionals, uh, the psychologists interview with the donor, because that's really, they do talk a lot about that. Um, But as the administrator and then the coordinators who are are doing the um, in-person frontline screening with the donors, I think it's just also important to sort of explore that and make sure that they, you know, you don't leave anything out. If anything, I say scare the pants off them right off the bat, because if they go through the screening and you spend the money on the screening, which we do at Cornell, um, we don't offset too much of that cost to the recipients. So we spend a lot of money screening and rejecting donors uh, before we ultimately offer a screened and and cleared donor. Uh, But you don't want to screen these donors and uh, then have them back out mid-cycle because they didn't Mm -hmm. know what was involved with doing IVF. Like many of the recipients now, many, I mean, Mm -hmm. unless you're you know, LGBT, uh, you know, same-sex men uh, using an egg donor and a surrogate, you've you might not have gone through an IVF cycle and the donors haven't gone through it either. So they don't know what is involved with the, what to expect, what to expect. So we really want yeah. to focus on education empowerment of the donors and also screening them. So when you have these mm-hmm. discussions with them, I agree with you. They can be very different with the coordinator who may be closer to their age with the administrator who, you know, I could cancel them and not give them their compensation check. So I'll Mm -hmm. sit down with them and kind of give them the mama bear. If you do this, you'll get canceled. If you do this, you'll make it through, you know, kind of um, Mm -hmm. choose your own adventure, if you will. Yes. (laughs) These these are the rules. These are the rules and and this is Mm -hmm. what can happen. And, you know, we want to tell you that you can't go out and get a tattoo or, or, you know, if you do let us know and and we want um, proof that it was done with sterile uh, instruments and and that the Department Mm -hmm. of Health has, you know, licensed this tattoo person or like, you know, we're very, you know, very strict with our screening medically, uh, psychological genetics and the, the documentation that we forward over to the recipients. We want to give them as much of a comprehensive profile and, but, you know, keeping in mind that it is a snapshot of this person, this human being, when they're in their maybe early, mid-20s, early 30s. Mm-hmm. Things can change with the family medical history in a decade. So the information yes. that we are collecting from the donor, she may, she may know a lot. She may not know anything, and it might not be her fault. Um, maybe her parents didn't, weren't upfront with her. So 
uh, you know, or not to scare know. people, right? But these are the yep. types of things that we will go into with them. And, you know, sometimes we won't accept a donor, let's say, who was adopted, unfortunately, because she might not have enough information on her family medical yes. history that we can relay. Correct. And we never want mm-hmm. to sort of, um, our psychologists are great about this. They say, you don't ever want to punish the donor for something that really isn't her own fault. And if she really wants, she's motivated to do something great and donate and be altruistic and it's going to help her. We don't want to disqualify her for something that really isn't her fault. But sometimes we have to because, you know, we can't just let everyone donate if we're not able to relay enough information over to this enough that our recipients will be comfortable with accepting, you know, sometimes the recipient will say, I'll take anyone. Or they could be carrying a genetic difficulty or carrying some other. And you Mm -hmm. don't know, but then, you know, you you also wouldn't know if the donor screened completely healthy in her early twenties and there was no family medical history of something. And then at 33, she's got breast cancer or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are certain things that are unpredictable and, uh, you know, that is kind of the same way it is in life, too. You know, when you marry yes. someone, you can always know what their medical history is or even have them do a whole pedigree before you mm-hmm. fall in love. <laughs> yes. But, um, Maybe we should. <laughs> right? Yeah, I think. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> let's create a new app. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's Right. Exactly. That's a good idea. <laughs> so could we start a little a bit at the beginning, yeah. like... So someone walks into your office because I think that our audience is really curious about how things work behind the scenes at a fertility clinic, how the donors screened. And, you know, we talked in previous episodes about how they get screened with the doctor, how the genetic counselor handles it and how the therapist handles it. So all of those people are seeing the donor after they've seen you right? So the donor sees you guys first, or you've seen their application first, and you're kind of the first line of seeing these donors. And so what happens? A donor starts an application process with you, and then what What happens next? We'll do a number of things to verify uh, the donor. Uh, we require that the donors are legal to be compensated in the U.S., so they have to provide their tax information, their social security number, their photo ID. You know, we want to make sure that we're who we're dealing with here. So we're going to verify and confirm the registration and, and who this person says that they are. The application after the, the shorter online application, which eliminates, I think, disqualifies probably 90% of the applicants. Uh, wow. When we finally will get a, a longer application from them with a lot more details on their education background and, and their physical characteristics. We get photos of them and things like that. And then if we think, you know, everything is looking good and we verif- further verified the information, we do risk medical, social and risk behavior assessments on them, uh, checking mm-hmm. for STD exposures. Uh, These are requirements by the FDA and the New York State Department of Health for screening. So there's screening Mm -hmm. and there's testing. So the screening is done with the questions that we ask. Um, Have you traveled to Zika area? If so, then we're going to defer that donor for six months. So we really follow the rules, (laughs) sometimes to detriment. Mm -hmm. 
if the donors uh, ever lived in, in Europe, then by FDA standards, they're ineligible for longer than five years cumulatively since 1980, then they're ineligible to donate in the U.S. That does eliminate a lot of donors who are uh, of European descent, um, but the mm-hmm. FDA hasn't changed that. You know, they could donate if it's a known donation, but they can't donate, and, and the FDA still uses the term anonymous which is what we do with our Cornell in-house donors. So we follow the mm-hmm. FDA regulations. And and the FDA really outlines uh, in that risk assessment the questions that we need to ask, exposures to, you know, injection, uh, drugs, tattoos, piercings, travel, STD. Do they live with someone who has hepatitis, West Nile virus, uh, Mm-hmm. Have you been bitten by an animal suspected of having rabies in the last six months? So that's thanks mm-hmm. to the New York State Department of Health. The rest of the United States doesn't have to worry about that question. All sorts of things. So we're doing all of these risk question errors and, and everything before they even get to see the psychologist, the genetic counselor, and, the, and then finally the doctor. So we want to mm-hmm. step in also with the donor. We want to step in with the, the least invasive uh, least expensive testing, not that, that she's paying for anything, but for us to step them in through the screening process so that we're not spending all the money on the ovarian ultrasound and, and the doctor's time and consultation and and the genetic carrier screening blood work, you know, that may be more expensive for the center to pay for. And also it's more invasive for the donor to go through. So we step her in, yes. we have her uh, do like a half an hour con- after we've confirmed all of the risk behavior assessments and travel and that she's committed to the next three months of screening and then cycling. Like it's not a quick thing for these donors. And then also that they understand that once they go through this and if they have a successful cycle, we still have them part of our Cornell program. It's not like, see you later, thanks for your donation and bye. They're part of the program sometimes for many, many years until they age out. They can donate up to six times with medical approval. They refer their friends. So it's very like we really get to know them here. Uh, They're not Mm -hmm. in and retrieve their eggs and gone. And we maintain a relationship with them when it's tax time and they have to pay taxes. Then they're coming back to me for help with their 1099 Mm -hmm. or, you know, what have Mm -hmm. you. So it's like an ongoing thing. And I think that they really appreciate that they're part of they're a Cornell donor. Like that's a thing. It's part of um, who they are. Mm. And a, a really good thing that they did, and they and we take good care of them, and we make sure that we're not hyperstimulating them, et cetera, et cetera. So back to the screen. Wonderful. So verified all of the risk assessments, assured the donor, even though we're going to put her through a little bit of discomfort, as the medical professionals say, <laughs> mm-hmm. that you know we're going to be there with her every step of the way and guide her through this. So. Then she meets for a half an hour consultation with the genetic counselor. They um, are now doing this by Zoom thanks to the pandemic. They do the, the pedigree of the family medical history. They will ask the donor a bunch of questions, you know, just to sort of suss out if there's something in the medical history that maybe the donor isn't aware of what it's called, but then they can get more information out of the donor, let's say, that she then she might even know. Uh, And then if there's some questions, have her go back to her parents or her relative and ask more information. So sometimes Mm -hmm. the genetic counselor will give the donor some homework uh, to do so that we can really fill out and flesh out that uh, pedigree with the information. And then next we'll go to the next level of sort of uh, time commitment. Uh, So the psychologist 
will meet with the donor for usually it's a, a 60 minute consultation. The donor typically will, will have the donor do the PAI or the MMPI, mm-hmm. which is the psych testing, if we can before mm-hmm. the psychologist meeting so that the psychologist has the report from the psych testing and then they can bring it up if there is repeat psych testing needed. We do a lot of psych testing on these donors. So sometimes they might have to repeat it. Let's say if it was invalid, a lot of times the donors are portraying themselves in a very positive light and it throws off the scales. I'm sure you're aware of this, Mm -hmm. having done thousands of these assessments yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, So then we kind of have to say, okay, you have to be a real person. You can't be overly virtuous. And we, you know, we're real here. It's okay to be real. So then, you know, maybe we'll have them take the test again and it's not that they're lying. They're just, you know, maybe being, you know. Right. It's like a job interview. It's a job interview. Exactly. But it's also yes. very personal. It's like, we're really going yes. there. And many of the, you know, the tests might come back a little bit defensive, uh, which is normal for that population. Mm-hmm. I don't have to talk about your job. But anyway, so we we get as, as honest, you know, as uh, an assessment. The psychologist will have a talk with them about all sorts of things. Um, I'm sure that you've discussed this before in your podcast. Yeah, we have. How, mm-hmm. how the psych assessment goes. So then psych assessment, 60 minutes, psych testing, psych report. And then after that, uh, medical. So then the donor is going to have a consultation with the physician or physician assistant Another mm-hmm. forty-five minute consultation to talk about now the medical aspects. Uh, what are the risks and benefits of doing this? Obviously, they're going to talk about hyperstimulation and the medications. We're doing the anti-malarian hormone testing uh, for the response would be to the fertility medications. If we could, and the antral follicle counts, uh, the scan of the ovaries to see how many resting follicles they may have. You never really can predict how they're going to stimulate, but we do our best with these assessment measures to, you know, decide if we should even take the donor or not medically. And then the blood draw, like I said, uh, urine toxicology, we do cultures for gonorrhea chlamydia, we do a long battery of uh, relevant communicable diseases and disease agents lists of testing that's required by the FDA and the New York State Department of Health. Uh, So I think the poor donors have about 16 tubes of blood that are drawn, and we give them snacks and water and cookies and let them lie down Mm -hmm. and pick breaks. And it's Mm -hmm. pretty intense. Yes, it's a very rigorous, yeah, yeah, very rigorous process, right? (laughs) Yeah. But I think that another thing that is really important, and people might not always consider this, is having very skilled technicians and phlebotomists mm-hmm. is, is very important. Like we have a, a technician that's now been with us almost pretty sure 19 years. She's even a wow. little bit famous in the donor chat rooms online. Because, oh, really? And, and donors will ask only to have their blood drawn by her. So, you know, little hats off to her. But I think it's really important to not overlook that piece of it when you are doing the medical testing and screening and this these blood draws and and even for monitoring Mm -hmm. so that the donors aren't bruised and and you know have all of these you know negative experiences really Mm -hmm. so i think having 
you know, putting focus on skilled technicians and people that will take the time and energy with them and not rush them and not make them make sure that they feel like they're really quite important when they're going through this. I think that's how you can retain donors um, because they, they can be a little bit Sometimes it's like herding kittens, really, um, to mm-hmm. get them through and, and to, to cycle and donate. They are doing it for someone else, not necessarily for themselves. Uh, sometimes we have the donors that will ask if they can freeze some eggs for themselves. We don't combine or split those two types of cycles. That's fraught with issues, uh, even though logistically it's one IVF cycle and a retrieval. And why can't you just split the eggs in half? But it has psychological, ethical, legal consenting I can't even tell you how many issues. That's a whole other podcast. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Shared and split things. So then when uh, all of the medical has been done, uh, the ultrasound, physical exam, the physician is going to be checking for clinical evidence of any of those STDs that we're also doing testing and screening for. So there's like three levels of looking for things that could be going on that maybe the donor, you know, if she doesn't know that she has chlamydia, we're going to find out because we've tested her for it. And mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you know those, those tests don't lie. She might not know. We've had donors that are yeah. married and come back and uh, one sex partner, their husband, uh, they come back positive for chlamydia. And we never want to have to tell them, well, if yes. you weren't changing your partner, your sex partner, your husband was changing their partner. And that's yes. how you got chlamydia, darling. So that's unfortunate. So we are dealing with a like gargantuan amount of screening and testing long yes. before the donors even get approved and get presented to the recipients for that level of scrutiny, let's say. Yes, yes. <laughs> with with yeah. the offer and the, uh, you know, donor selection process, which is a very important and a, a very big decision of, on the part of the recipient. So we want to make sure that we are as thorough as possible with our screening, because when we're presenting these profiles to our recipients, they're going to have a million questions, not only about the ins and outs of the screening, but about the donor and the information that is being mm-hmm. provided and what's yeah. involved and what are the next steps. And so, yes, very long process. So much. So I think everyone, probably after hearing that, your head's spinning a little bit and not <laughs> realizing, right? No, it's wonderful. We do it every day. So it's just, it's, yeah, it's just like clockwork. But I think that a lot of people probably don't realize what goes into the donor screening. And I, and as you know, recipients are often so anxious about right. choosing their donor and they want to feel comfortable. And right. I think hearing this is so great because there's a testament to the fact that you are kind of crossing every T and dotting every I and really making sure that you're presenting the recipients with donors who are really well suited for this in so many ways, right? Medically, genetically, psychologically, that they're prepared. They're prepared for for the future, understanding that that one day these people might reach out to them, understanding that what are their children going to say, their partners, all of these things. but also all these medical pieces that people do worry about. And so I think it's so helpful for people to understand how much actually goes into it before they even see the profile, right? And then recipients come to you and say, okay, show me a donor, and you have to go through this matching process. And as we know, it can be so hard for patients to feel, particularly if they're anxious about moving forward 
with donor conception to feel comfortable with the donors. So sometimes they might be looking for someone who looks like them or somebody who has shared interests or somebody who has same ethnic background, right? But those sorts of things can be very difficult because from your seat, you're doing all of these other kind of more practical things and trying to satisfy the needs of the recipients. Correct and all of their desires to really feel comfortable with this person who they're going to be, you know, asking to use their genetics to build their future family. And that can be really, really hard. We will focus our screening on, you know, it's kind of inverted. We focus our screening on the recipients that because we have a recipient wait list, uh, the recipients and who and what kind of donors they're waiting for and focus Mm -hmm. our energies on, you know, those people. So uh, even though the wait list is a long time, there's a lot of work that we're doing for the recipients uh, with them in mind, looking at their profiles every day. And, you know, we're not going to waste our time and energy screening donors that don't match people that are on the list, let's say. But, you know, that being said, we are maintaining a frozen egg bank that is a little bit, it's for the the Cornell recipients only. uh, And there we want to have like a vast sort of a variety of available donors, you know, the ones that are more commonly or, or more easily matchable, you know, we we'll freeze the eggs and they're gone next week, right? Like that mm-hmm. people think that the frozen bank inventory is a static thing. The static donor egg bank inventory is more like the United Colors of Benetton that grows <laughs> in the background. So right. if you're like Uzbek, Persian, Turkish, <laughs> and you need yeah. an egg donor, we might have eggs for you, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm. it's not just the, I don't want to use the word like more common, but, you know, more matchable, whatever, you know, populations or races or what people are looking for. As you probably know, there are certain donors that are harder to come by. Like know, donors of color are hard to come Jewish by. Mm-hmm. And, Exactly. Things like that. So we always want to, if we get those types of donors that are applying, that we you know focus our energies on those because they're very hard to come by. So it's constantly like as a, like an administrative way, you're always wanting to balance these things and, and advertising and, and, you know, taking care of the people that are on the wait list and keeping the program moving and preserving resources, uh, financial and provider time and all of those uh, good things. The donors will also, before they actually cycle, get tested again within a couple of weeks of retrieving the eggs. So even though we do the testing and screening initially, it's repeated again right before they're retrieved. So sometimes patients who are matched with the donor going through that fresh cycle, the donor could still get canceled uh, by us if she suddenly has a new something or other that pops up. So, And that can happen. Yeah, and it does. Fortunately, it's, you know, like around 5% of the time because we've done enough of the preparation of the donor telling her what to avoid. Avoid the tattoos, you know, and sex, you know, no new partners, no travel to Zika places, no, no this, no this, no this. (laughs) (laughs) Right, all these things. And I I have a paper that I make them sign that they understand all of these things, because if they do that and they get canceled, they're not going to get compensated. If they get canceled Mm -hmm. by the clinic, because let's say their stimulation isn't going well, we also want to optimize the retrieval and the number of eggs and whatnot, and the quality of the eggs, let's say for the recipient on the other side, 
But if we think that it's really not going to be worth it, then the doctors will cancel the cycle. Now, if the doctor cancels the cycle, that's a no-fault, a donor no-fault cancellation, and we will give the donor partial compensation. Cornell pays for that. The recipients don't have to worry about paying for that. So that's like just, I guess, another positive of being a, a Cornell recipient. There's a lot of things that happen in the background that you don't see. We understand right. that it's a very expensive process. And a lot of times, most times when people are coming in to donor egg, whether either they were doing IVF for years or they have to use a surrogate, no matter what, it's costing them already tens of thousands of dollars before yes. they get to the most expensive, most complicated treatment type there is in ART. Yes. So there are a lot yes. of things that we do keeping that in mind and we don't itemize a lot of the donor testing and screening or the donor medications, let's say, if they one donor needs sort of a lower dose of medications to get her through to the retrieval or the next donor needs twice as many medications, we don't charge differently uh, for the donor mm -hmm. treatment here. So, you know, there are a lot of things that we're trying to be very thoughtful about when it comes to the mm -hmm. way that the egg donor program is done. and. Kudos to Dr. Rosenwax and his whole team. This was one of the first donor programs in the United States. Yes. His baby, and I'm very mm -hmm. proud to be helping him yeah. continue this legacy. But we still kind of are a little old school in the way we do it, although we keep up with all the amazing technologies in our lab and artificial intelligence and all sorts of things that are going on. We still want to keep that human aspect. And even with the egg bank, donors, we have met them, cycled them, retrieved them, know them, the same they process. come back again. Yeah. Now, speaking of that human touch, I think you and I spoke about it earlier, but we didn't mention it today on the podcast, is mm -hmm. that a lot of people are not familiar with the idea that although donors are compensated in this country, mm -hmm. it's also necessary to make sure there's altruistic motives. So right. could you speak to that a little bit, Dee? Because I think that people do wonder, you know, why do they do it and what are they like and is their heart really in it and do they really want to do this from the bottom of their heart or are they someone who just is kind of down and out? So could you clarify that a little bit for the audience? The motivation for donation is something that is going to be picked up right at the beginning of screening. So, you know, uh, it is definitely going to be explored more in the psychological or mental health consultation or the consultation with the physician if they don't have mm -hmm. a mental health professional. There are always going to be these questions like, why are you doing this? How did you find us? You know, there's different ways that we ask the question. What do you plan to do with the money? Uh, these types of things to determine if this donor or this person, uh, not a donor yet, or let's say it's a repeat donor, are they in any sort of state of duress? Do they need the money to live? Are they only doing it for the money? In our minds, if that is the case, then they should not be allowed to donate. We do think that they may and probably likely will regret donating in the future if they only yes. did it for the money. And maybe ten dollars or $12,000 is a lot of money to someone in their early 20s who, you know, needs the money. But, you know, in the long run, it's really not that huge amount of money. And looking back at it 10 years later in your 30s, when you have your own family, if you're going to regret donating that you, you know, we just don't want that to happen. So our program has always been set up right off the bat that the donor's motivation has to have a combination of altruism, as well as, you know, some fiscal benefit that they're going to get out of it. But they wouldn't be using that money to pay their rent or to buy food. 
maybe they're going to pay their student loans or they're going to take their parents on a, a trip or something, a vacation. So mm-hmm. I find also that the donors, because I've read a lot of psych reports and you can mm-hmm. probably speak to this too, is that they're, they are of the mind that they, they are altruistic and they want to do good and they want to do something, but they don't have their own money to, to give to a charitable organization. And, and then they have their eggs, right? And they can do something great with them and help someone family yes. build. And they're not thinking of them as their own children. Because there are people who think of their own eggs as their own children. And those are not people mm-hmm. that should be donors. Correct. They think of yeah. them, I think, uh, as distant relatives that they may never meet. Or maybe they'll meet once. Who knows? It's their way of, of giving back and doing something good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. so you have that type of donor that is truly altruistically motivated. And they are mm-hmm. going to benefit financially. And so when you find that little sweet spot, then you know, you're like, okay, good. You know, she's Mm -hmm. probably going to make it through the whole process. She's getting enough out of it. You know, when she's in the middle of a cycle and and it's coming up on a scary retrieval, let's say, is the money really worth it? Right. And then they back Mm -hmm. up. But if they really have this altruistic motivation, I think that they get through it more. Yes. But I'm not sure. I don't know if anyone's done a study on that yet. We should. Yes. Yes. I don't know either, but I agree with you. I think that if they're really committed and they want to do something to help another family, then they're they're usually very committed to it. I think that a lot of the things that you're saying today, Dee, really can help people feel more comfortable with the whole idea of using an egg donor when it feels so uncomfortable. But I'm wondering a little bit also about your experience of kind of fast forward looking at people afterwards, right? They come into this and they think, well, you know, I'm nervous because she has too many freckles or I'm nervous because, you know, she's not musical enough or whatever. And they start right, to right. pick apart these things when they're very anxious, right? And we right. we want to reassure them that all these pieces of the puzzle are put together and we're really getting the best candidate for them possible. But right. still it can be anxiety provoking and they yeah. sometimes get so nervous that they fixate on, you know, I don't like her hairline or whatever it might be, even though it may not be about that. It's just about their right. anxiety. So you speak to patients later. They come back to you or they talk to you later after they've already had their children. And what do they say to you? Well, there's a range of, of things. Not everyone is the same. Mm-hmm. Everybody is completely different. Every match is different. We speak with them beforehand because when they are going on the list, we ask what is important to them. And then we try to offer as many of those things in one donor as possible. So some of the ways that I will say First off, I'll always say go with your gut, right? Because if your gut doesn't feel good, it's only going to get worse. If you think mm. that you can get past the, the one thing that you're perseverating on in that profile and it's not going to really bother you when you're pregnant, you know, because we really want to get you pregnant and this might be the donor that does it, right? Mm-hmm. So um, if it's not going to get so much worse during the pregnancy then if you can get past it, then go with this donor. And if you can't, let it go and try it with a different match uh, because then something else might feel right. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to try to make it feel right. And I think sometimes they, you know, it just needs to feel as good as it possibly can. Uh, and you go mm-hmm. with your gut, timing-wise, donor-wise, uh, treatment type, and whatever the family building goals are, you know, and, and some some things come up in someone's life and you never know what's what's going to happen. So I have different things. I have 
for the most part, I have the recipients that were, you know, really very particular about the matching. They had to look as much like the intended mom or, or you know, whatever physical features we're looking the one intended father or, or what have you as much as possible, or the physical match was less important, the education, whatever it is, it's really important to validate and to acknowledge how important the matching phase is. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, even though I know that I've had patients come back later and send me pictures of their baby and say, it doesn't matter, I don't care (laughs) anymore, Mm -hmm. Um, I'm in love with my baby no matter what, Mm -hmm. even lost the profile, could you resend it, you know, three years later, (laughs) you know. But uh, just because it doesn't matter later doesn't mean it doesn't matter now and when, mm-hmm. they're, when they're matching. So we kind of put on our, you know, matching hats and, and, you know, we can also get a sense and help the, and the psychologists and the doctors also help too with speaking to them about maybe it's just not the right donor and you're trying to fit a square peg in a round hole and you don't have to mm-hmm. because the important thing to do I think, in my opinion, is to make sure that you do it right. And it's the right decision. You can't unring the bell once you do it, right? Not to scare you. Mm -hmm. But if you wait another couple of months, and then maybe that right donor comes along, and then you feel that it's right, or it's more right than the other one. Mm -hmm. And it fits. So there's a a lot to say with going with your gut. I think for the many decisions that people have to make, right? For donors deciding where to donate and how to donate, for recipients yes. or intended parents deciding which doctor, which clinic, like the thousands of decisions that they have to make. And I don't envy them. Just try to help them through the process. But selecting a donor is a huge decision. But I think one of the things that when you do have a clinic that does such extensive screening and testing and, and doing the best that they can to validate you know, we're not doing background checks. We're not, you know, following the donor mm-hmm. around town to make sure she's going to whatever, you know, place she says she's going to. But there's certain levels of experience when you're screening these people and relaying this information that you can be a little, you can relax a little. You know, I think that that's their job. You know, I don't have to be the mm-hmm. one screening. I let the professionals do the screening. And I'm just going to see if the profile and this person, the personality, education, hair color, so they, you know, all these things, if that feels right. And if that feels like it's going to fit in my family, you never know what the baby's going to look like. Uh, all three, if you have three siblings from the same set of embryos, they could all look completely different. Oh, different. Um, mm-hmm. So you never really know. But uh, the fact of the matter is the donor selection and making that decision when you're deciding on a donor is, is very important. Very important. And it's so wonderful, Dee, that you take all of this so seriously. And I think what you just said is really important. So I'm just going to repeat it. I think for all of you out there, when you're going through this to make sure all of the screening is done, but then also, as Dee is saying, you know, validate your feelings. If you feel like you really need to have a certain person. You know, we've had people on this podcast before that said they went with their gut, even though it wasn't exactly what they thought they wanted initially, they went with their gut. Who knows? Maybe you're meant to be united with this person for the rest of your life in some fashion. You know, who knows why? But I think that, as Dee just mentioned, the way that you feel before and the way that you feel after may be different, but you can't catapult yourself there. You need to respect where you are at every phase. So I think that's wonderful advice. 
Really wonderful advice. Well, thank you so much for all of this information. I really appreciate it. And I think everyone out there is going to appreciate it as well. Is there any way that people can reach out to you or ask you questions, Dee? Are you available in any way? Or they can always reach out through me if that's easier for you. Definitely. You know, they can call uh, Cornell and ask for mm-hmm. Dee and get my extension. I could also give you my email address. Right. Uh, but I, I think I'm pretty accessible. Terrific. Terrific. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming today. I know you have a very busy schedule and I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) Oh, it's my pleasure. And for all of you out there, thanks so much for joining us. This has been wonderful to have Dee here and to have you join us. I hope she's answered some of your questions, some of the questions that you write in about or things that you think about at night. I hope she's put your mind at ease. And until next time, please subscribe because that's how we keep going. And we'll see you soon. 